We're going to be going to the book of James. Find the book of James in your Bibles with me, please. Chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. Go ahead. Does anybody have a cash dollar bill on them of some denomination? I just need it for a demonstration. You may or may not get it back. All right, great. Just... All right, Lawson, you're going to pass the dollar bill here. Okay, it's going that direction. Thank you very much. Woo! Working man's money. All right. So, this dollar bill, do you believe this to be real currency that Lawson could take and spend and people would say, yeah, that's good? Well, well, there are some tests that we could run to see if it's authentic. Do you all know what the tests are on paper currency? Taylor? Yeah, they call that a watermark. Okay, cool. What else? Fletcher. So is that Snippet? No, that's not one. Magnetism. It has security threads that are metallic that run through it and microcoding on it. No, that's gold. It's movies. That's true. Be careful with getting your money wet, though. You can even ruin the U.S. currency that way. Yes. Yeah, they have all kinds of secrets inside your dollar bills. Where you're, you're myself, so all right. And so there, in the serial numbers, there are codings between serial numbers and other places on the on the dollar, or to, to tell you what's going on. Yep. No, that's true. You can do the actual. Hey, would you give me twenty bucks for this? And if they say no, it's probably fake. Liberty. <laughs> Yes, they have actually threads woven into it. How you do it? Don't know. If you figure it out, don't try it. The U.S. Secret Service will come after you for counterfeiting. Um, we'll hand this. I'll actually make sure this gets back to Lawson. Y'all, the reason they have all those things in there is for what? Why do they have all those tests in the dollar? So someone can't fake it. Another word might be so that it's authentic. So that it's authentic. Just like the dollar bill or any of those currencies that the U.S. government has made, has tests in them so that they are authentic. We're going to see tonight two sets of tests of whether or not our faith is authentic. The theme of the book of James are the effects of true saving faith. That's the entire theme of the book. So everything we read in this book, God put in there by the author James so that we would know, is my faith real? Is my faith real? And so we're going to be able to test that tonight, just like we could test a dollar Bill. All right, so we're going to do that. James chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. I'll read that for us. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. If you're looking for a theme for our passage tonight, you want to write that down in your notes. It goes like this. Authentic religion begins with God-prompted heart change. God has to change our hearts first. And then it's exhibited or lived out or seen by loving Him 
and loving others. So tonight we're going to look in a mirror. Tonight we're going to look in a mirror and God's Word's going to look back at us. And it's going to show us who we are. And in this mirror we're going to see two assessments. One is man's assessment or a human's assessment of is my faith real and what we just base that off of. Another one is God's assessment of how He knows our faith is real and how we can know our faith is real. Alright, so what we're doing, point number one, you need to, name, you need to uh, label man's assessment. Man's assessment, point number one. And this is all about verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. That if at the beginning of the verse is like, is a test. It's an if then. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, that phrase, if anyone thinks, is like, hmm, I'm really trying to assess. Is this where am I? Where do I stand with the Lord? He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, so he's like, all right, I'm declaring myself to be religious, is what he's thinking about. This is, I'm saying I am this way. The word religious in, this, in Greek is, he's basing it all off of external acts of worship. Things we do. What are some of the things that people do that they would then say, hey, I do these things, so God must be pleased with me? What are some of those things? Giving. Giving money. Yes. Going to church. Attendance. I did it for a long time. He must think I'm good. Fuck. Obedience to his laws. I'm conforming. Right? Do you remember the parable of the rich young ruler? From the scripture? Mr. Jack in the back was like, yeah, I know it. Okay. Yeah. The rich young ruler is like, hey, what did he tell Jesus? I've kept all these commandments since my youth. Right? He thought he was doing it. Right? Liberty? Reading God's Word. I read it. My parents told me to read it, and I read it. I must be good. Mayhem. Praying a prayer. Walking an aisle. Going to youth group. Oh, there he's hitting right in the heart of things. I'm here, aren't I? Okay. Right? Complimenting Mr. Alejandro for his flowing locks. Those are all things that may or may not justify you between, that doesn't, doesn't count. You can try it. He might like it, but it won't help you. Right? Um, they are great. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, I like them. So, no, those are all external things. Are some of those things good things that we listed? Things that you should do if you say, I believe in God, my faith rests in Him, Jesus Christ is my Savior. Yes, we should read God's Word. We should pray to Him. We should obey His law. We should do those things. We should go to church. Those are right things to do. But do those things justify you externally? Because it's hard to read someone's heart, and James knows that. He gives us two tests so we can understand what's going on. So this man who's thinking, externally, I do the right thing, this man's going to say, we're going to prove whether or not his faith is true or not by actually what he does. So we keep going in the verse, we see if anyone thinks himself to be religious and then yet does not do things, he does not bridle his tongue. Do I have any horse riders in the audience? Okay, I got an got over here and a definite yes. What does a bridle do on a horse? It helps him control. It's the thing that goes over the horse's head that then the reins connect to so that the rider can control the horse. All right? So he doesn't bridle his tongue, which means he doesn't do what to his tongue? He doesn't control it. What does an uncontrolled tongue do? 
it speaks out violence. What else might it do? It might lie. It might gossip. You guys know this tongue. You know this thing. You may, maybe from personal experience, maybe from someone you know that has susceptible, you know, become, become susceptible to these things. Yeah. That's what an uncontrolled tongue can do. So an unrestrained tongue, an unbridled tongue, picture it like this. You're driving down the highway. I know this is a hot topic for people that can drive, so I might be just going to traffic. But, um, and you're in California, where Mr. Jackson's from. And you are driving down there, and a car just zooms by you with the pedal to the metal. Right? It's going as fast as possible. It happens to be a Tesla. And there's no driver in it. It's in Tesla life in Texas, no driver in it. What could happen with no driver behind the wheel and a car speeding on the highway? It can hit box trucks. Is box box trucks? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Go get them, Turbo. That's okay. In, okay. So chaos was where I was going for chaos. Some of those things were somewhat like that. Lots of carnage could happen. That's if your tongue's out of control. So this man who thinks himself to be religious, but he doesn't bridle his tongue, that's showing us something. Right? That's showing us something. God's Word says, well, where do these words that come off of our mouth, where do they come from? What do they show about us? Right? If we wanted to know where these words come from, what they do to our own hearts, we would go to, we would go to where am I? Matthew, I missed it. We'll come back to it. I'll find my reference. I got ahead of myself. But either way, in the book of Matthew, we'll get the reference in a moment. It says that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's out of our heart, the mouth speaks. So if you have an unrestrained tongue, you have an unrestrained heart. If you have an unrestrained heart, that means that you are not obeying the Lord. And the verse continues. It says not only does he not bridle his tongue, but he also is deceiving his heart. This word deceiving, it means he's being misled. And it's in the active present participle. So what that means is constantly happening, which means this man's state, is his heart, his inner awareness of who he is, is misled. He doesn't know who he is, really. He doesn't know what's true. He's misleading his heart. And if you go to, I was going to have you turn to this, so I'll read it for you. Uh, this is another section in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, we're going to see what happens when we have people that think they're doing external acts, and they're doing all the right things, but yet their hearts really weren't transformed by God. This is Matthew chapter 7. If you want to turn there and read with me, you can. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 27. Well, we'll go to 23. 15 to 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 23. It says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. I'm going to pause there. Does someone have verse 21 right by their finger? Fox, what is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21? Read it loud, please. Say just showed you a test of a true believer right there in verse 21. If you need to read it again to see it, go ahead. I'm going to ask you, what is 
the test of a true believer from verse 21. If you want Fox to read it again, he can. Do you want to read it again? He does. Go ahead. One more time. What's the test? Whoever does the will of his Father. So now we have to be thinking, if my faith is real, I'm doing the will of my Father. My Father is God. If I'm doing His will, would I have an unrestrained tongue that's just going everywhere, committing violence, cutting people, lying? Would I? No, you would not. I'm going to continue in Matthew chapter 7, starting verse 22. It says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? In verse 23, this is important. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So our man, in verse 26 of James, thinks himself to be in a good standing with God because he does the external acts of religion. He's doing those things, like we discussed, good things that the Bible talks about. But his heart is unchanged because his tongue is unrestrained and he's deceiving his own heart. So he's actually like, the people in verse 23, where Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you to part from me, you who practice lawlessness. Because when you uncover what their heart is doing, it's lawlessness. Instead of obedience to God according to His Word, they're after their own pursuit. The commentator Kissemacher says this. He says, from man's point of view, the hasty word, the shading of the truth, the subtle innuendo, and the questionable joke are shrugged off as insignificant. Yet from God's perspective, they are a violation of the command to love the Lord God and to love one's neighbor as oneself. A single breach of this command renders man's religion of no avail. Some of you have memorized James 2.10 as we went to chapter 2, verse 7. We should recognize this. It says, Forever, For whoever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So we miss on one that our heart is guilty before the Lord. And this man is thinking, I do enough good work. Surely I'm okay. Surely I'm there. So the question is, what's the final result of this man's thinking? What's the assessment from God's perspective? Well, James doesn't leave things unclear to us. We finish the verse. The Holy Spirit, through James, evaluates this man's assessment. And what's the end of verse 26 say about this man's religion? You have to go to James chapter 1, verse 26. I know. It's easy. Plain His religion is worthless. External acts only, God just told us, are not what saves you. They're not what saves you. We'll look at what does here in just a moment. And sooner or later, Someone who's doing the external act, someone who is not bribing their tongue, though, that unbeliever is going to show their true dead heart by the way they speak, by the way they act, by the way they interact with people. And it's a dark and empty place. It's a scary place. In Matthew 7, 23, we read it. Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the question tonight is, where are you? Are you thinking, because I'm at youth group? because I came to church, because my family goes here, because I'm taking notes in my Bible like these studious people in the front row. Oh, I sat in the front row. That gives me extra credit points. You know? Are, is, are those the things you're thinking that, that I rely on that that's what makes me feel like I'm going to make it? 
I'm going to be with my Father in heaven. If that's where you are, listen carefully. Because that's not what saves you. We just saw that. External acts do not save. Everybody is dead in their sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 talks about that. We're all dead in our sins. We're unrepentant. We're walking with a misled heart. We're walking in conformity with the world. But there's a beautiful verse in Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about the gospel. Because this is the only way a dead heart that has an unrestrained tongue and lives that out can be transformed. It's not through external works. It's only through God's saving gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it sounds like this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And here is the gospel. By faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Only God can regenerate the heart. And He's calling you right now, if you're in that place, I have been justifying myself before God by just being at church, just doing the right things. I read my Bible, I said a prayer, but I'm not really sure. And God's calling you right now to say, repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ alone. And for His workers, then He will save you. Your assurance will be in His work, not your own. But if we continue, if we continue in our, in our study, we'll see that God assesses the sincerity of our response to His gospel. It's not by external religious activity. It's by internal heart change. So how can we know that our heart has actually changed? The commentator MacArthur states this. He says, The genuineness of anyone's religion is not determined by his or, own, his or her own qualifications or standards, but by God. Let's look at verse 27, because that's where we get to now see God's assessment. James chapter 1, verse 27. So we're talking about what is true religion. In James chapter 1, verse 27, will tell us. It says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So we get to see God's definition of religion. He says it's pure and it's undefiled and it's defined by Him in the sight of our God and Father. Again, we see this word religion, second time we've seen it in two verses. And it's talking about what does the service of worship look like? What does it look like? But the, the catch here is that religion is no longer being defined by what man would say is this external act only. But now it's being defined by God. And he defines it as pure and undefiled. You may have been hoping, like, ooh, he's going to tell me what the list of things I need to do is. He says, my religion is pure and someone else's isn't. Like, I get a list and I can check it off every day and I'll feel good about myself. God knows us and our hearts better than that. He's not going to give us a list of finite things that we would do that would justify ourselves. Instead, he gives us concepts, things to look at that would characterize us. One is pure, and that's the things related to a person morally. They are morally pure. They're spiritually responsible people. And the second is undefiled, which means that the, the world has not tainted you. You're unsoiled. You are free from the nature of sin. And the question is, well, who defines those terms that you would apply them to me? And that's what the next phrase in the verse is why it's really important. It says, in the sight of our God and Father. They're His definition. And in all across Scripture, He's told us what it takes to be 
able to walk straight in what his standard is. I'll just give you a few references. Old Testament, New Testament, so you know I'm not making it up. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The standard? Perfection. Leviticus 19.2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Micah 6.8 Behold you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 2, verse 13 for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And then one more for uh, rounding it out. Galatians 3.11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous one shall live by faith. I stopped with that one because the standard is perfection. Are any one of you in here perfect? If you raise your hand, you're being human. This is a bad time to be human. No, we're not perfect. Isn't it? We're not perfect. Right? We are imperfect. We are sinners. That's why I love Galatians 3.11. No one is justified by the law before God. Why? Because we're not perfect. How are we justified before God? By faith. And our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the gospel. But God has summed it up. And if you want the summation of the perfect person, many people did. And they asked Jesus on earth. In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, Jesus summarized it for them. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responded and said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so in our journey tonight to find out, is my faith real? I'm now seeing that God has called me to a pure, undefiled religion. He's called it in, the, in a way that in, in a way that he wants us to serve others. He wants us to love him and then to serve others and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. So let's take that apart. The rest part of the verse is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So that, to visit orphans and widows in distress is others-focused. So we need to be serving others. So why would God choose orphans and widows as his example of what it is to love others? Why would he choose orphans and widows? Right? So, I mean, you have to put on your, where was I in time when this was written? Cat. I thought that cat came out there. So if you put that on, you're going to go back then, and you want to understand by, text, by, by context what's taking place. Israel, in, the, in Jesus' time, did they have cars and trucks and airplanes? No. Accurate response. They did not. They were a farming culture. Right? They were an agricultural society. So that meant you had to someone to work the land. You had to have someone that would actually do that work in that society and to earn an income. If you are an orphan, you don't have parents. You don't have anybody. You don't have land. You don't have a way to make money. You don't have a way to live. They're the most helpless in that society. And in that society, if you're a widow, you also then didn't have a husband. You didn't have a family around you that would, unless you could go back home. You were on your own in a society where you had to have a whole family network just to live. And again, helpless is the idea. So God picks the orphans and the widows and says, if you're going to go visit them on purpose to intentionally care for them, that is someone's heart that is going outside of themselves 
to love others. That is God's standard. Because if that's what someone's trying to do, that's a heart that's been changed by me because no one else would do that. No one else would take that on. And not only does it say orphans and widows, but does God's Word help us to know that it's not just orphans and widows that we're supposed to love? Does it say somewhere else of who we're supposed to love? Speaking of a verse that says, who are we supposed to love as Christians? Your neighbors. Do you remember where that is? That work. And love your neighbor as yourself, right? Or in that verse we just read in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus summarizes it, right? You can love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew chapter 5, 44, he makes it a bigger standard. He says, love your enemies. You got it, right? Actually, you knew that. You're holding back on me, right? So he says, love your enemies. Okay, so we know we're supposed to do that. And in John chapter 13, he t- 34 and 35, Jesus says, Love your brethren, your fellow believer, and not only love them, but love them as I have loved them. Love them sacrificially. So it's not just or- orphans and widows. They're the extreme, but it's also the people in between that we're supposed to love. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 10-11, it says this, The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because of darkness has blinded his eyes. First John chapter 2, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. We know that our faith is real when we have a sincere love for the brethren. And not only just for my friends who I have to be around all the time, but even for the extreme, the ones that are helpless. And not only ones that are helpless like orphans and widows, but even those who would be considered my enemies. Those that hate, I would actually, in Matthew chapter 544, you can read that. It talks about praying for them because you know that God loves them generally and has hope for them to repent. So, let's spell that out. I told you we're supposed to love our brethren. What does it look like to love your brother or sister in Christ? What are the things you would do? Okay, so like with your parents, and in a single word, we call that obey or obedience. Yes, that would be a way to love your parents in Christ, correct. To help people out who are financially hurting, yes. To pray for them when they have concerns, yes. You have a question. The title of tonight, Authentic Heart Change. Thank you. I don't believe I said it. Appreciate that. Authentic heart change. Respectfulness. Be respectful to who? That's too hard of a question because it's too easy. Everybody. My bad. My mistake. Yeah, if we're going to love people, then we are going to pray for them. We are going to serve them. I love the fact that Ian went straight to his parents. Obedience to your folks. Right? When we're obe- when obedient to our folks, whether we like it or not, all my children are younger than me, so I see this in a more raw form at home. Y'all have other subtle ways you might try to get away with not obedience. Don't tell other people about it. Just forget about them. Pretend it doesn't move on. 
you know, we, we have that tendency to say, I, I don't want to do that thing. That's not what I want to do right now. That's that period. But if you love them, like Christ you love them, you'll say, yes, I'm happy to. And you conform. Yeah, those are ways that you love other people. And you would share the gospel with unbelievers if you go to the unbeliever side. You would love them enough, even though they're not a fellow brother or sister in Christ, to let the truth of God be known to them. Right? So that's serving others. That's one way, right? We said to visit orphans and widows. But the other part of verse 27, if we go to the next phrase, it says to keep oneself unstained by the world. So what does that look like? So keeping yourself unstained by the world. That idea unstained, or actually I should say the, the idea to keep oneself is like the word bridle. It's to restrain yourself or to keep yourself back, to resist. And this by the world is talking about the world system. The world system that's out there. And we know that world system is tempting us in all kinds of ways, but it's summarized there as like the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All these things are pulling at you. Just saying, no, be like me, participate in me, be here. And God's word is calling a Christian to say, no, resist that. Push away from it. Don't go there. You want to be unstained by the world. Peter says it this way. Therefore, beloved, this is Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14. It says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And First John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. But being unstained by the world isn't just resisting. It's not just that. There's this other half to that coin. And the other half to that coin of resistance is then what do I participate in? What do I run towards? And the word we call that is sanctification. I go into learning how to obey God better. How do I do that? I do that according to his word. Peter has a comment on this as well, still in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, verses 17 and 18, which says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But, do this, in verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, how does someone grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ? How does someone do that? By reading their Bible? Yes. How else? Let's explore this and unpack a little bit. Let's show them the national. Yeah. Having a good prayer life. Talking to the Lord. About what? What are the things we talk to the Lord about? That's an important question. Yes. Praying for wisdom. Solomon did that. We have that example in Scripture, right? God wants us to pray for wisdom. Yes. Asher, I said Asher could go. Asher? How do we learn? And what do we listen to? Talking about what? The gospel. We did it. Yeah. You got to pull all these things through. So you're, you're doing that, right? Nicely done. You stuck with it. I appreciate that. You had an idea. We thank him, right? It's going back to what we pray about. We thank the Lord. Gratitude. Yes. You're talking about all that his word says. You, want to t- you, can, you can go through the Psalms. You can say, this is how I worship you. You go through Proverbs. This is where wisdom comes from, the fear of the Lord. There's a lot of things we can do to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who is at home right now that's not with you for most of you right now? 
Two people, probably. Parents. What could you do with your parents to learn more about what God's Word says? You can pray with them. What else can you do with them? You can ask questions. You can talk to them about it. You want to know about God's Word? Go there. Ask them about it. If you don't have a parent that's a believer that opens God's Word with you, ask one of your youth leaders. They'll help you. You're not alone, is my point. You can grow in the knowledge of who God is through God's Word. If you run into obstacles about what does that mean, you ask someone else. And I've heard there's a thing called the internet that might be able to have some answers for you if you study Scripture. But still, go to one of your youth leaders first, and they'll help you navigate all of those things. The point is that God wants us to be unstained by the world, which on one hand is pushing back the things that are ungodly, and on the other hand is welcoming and drawing in the things that are godly, the things that God's Word teaches us about Himself. A summary verse that could go along with this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 11 to 14 that puts it all together. He says, Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good profession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, who testified the good profession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. Beyond selflessly serving others, what does loving God look like? Beyond selflessly serving others, what does loving God look like? Serving Him, and what would that look like? Serving the church. Thank you. Obeying His laws. Yes. Reading His Word. This this half is crushing it over here. Y'all are somewhat crushing it. One more. Meditating on His Word, really trying to understand it. MacArthur says this in that answer that it means full allegiance to God in everything that you do. I wasn't expecting y'all to say those words exactly, but. That's the idea. Everything you do, you've given your life over to Christ. MacArthur says this, he says, In his inmost heart, the genuine Christian longs to speak and do only those things that are holy, pure, loving, honest, truthful, and upright. Things that are uncorrupted and unstained by the the world. The result of God's assessment is that when I have changed someone's heart, when God has changed someone's heart for the gospel, then that heart will restrain itself, meaning it will keep the world at bay, and it will grow in knowledge of God, and it will then extend itself in serving others. That's what a saved heart looks like. Tonight, in summary, we consider two assessments. The first thing we saw was man's assessment. And man's assessment was based off of external things only, but yet their heart, through their mouth, had an unbridled tongue. He didn't show a changed heart. Showed a dead heart. And we've also seen God's assessment of religion. It's available to all through the gospel, the gospel of the Son Jesus Christ. And what is it? It's a pure and undefiled love of God and a love for his people. So I started tonight with an illustration about lost and $20 bills. And it had all kinds of things that we could point at. 
that would show it was authentic or not. It had sightings and all kinds of things, the watermark. God's Word has just showed us, has just shown us what authentic faith looks like. It looks like pure and undefilable living, a love of God and a love for His people. So in conclusion, I ask you three things. When you look at God's Word, have a teachable heart. Have a teachable heart. Second, when you look at God's Word, be consistent in your obedience. And lastly, when you look at God's Word, make sure that you have authentic heart change. And I'll leave you with a favorite verse, and then we'll pray. Psalm 19.14 says this, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Pray with me, please. Father God, you have opened up your word to us tonight. You have shown us what true faith looks like. And Lord, help us to have the light of your word exposed in our hearts. If we're not a believer, Lord, if you haven't regenerated our heart, have it expose the weight of sin before us, before a holy God whose standard is perfection, and have us hear again the gospel of true saving faith through your Son, Jesus Christ alone. And Lord, for believers in this room, have that light of your word shine into our hearts and expose areas where we can praise you because you are growing us closer and closer to you. And have it show areas where we need to grow and have us repent and grow in that and walk more closely with you because we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.